Well, dry cleaning is not dry. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they wet your clothes. Uh, your clothes get soaked, just not in water. And so they call it dry cleaning because there's no water involved. But there's a lot of other stuff. Uh, it's called perchloroethylene, or as they call it in the business, perk. Perk is very effective at moving removing stains that water can't, especially grease stains and things like that. The reason you would dry clean is because water bonds to fabric uh, in ways that you might not want it. Certain fabrics like wool, silk, um, and other natural fibers. Whereas what perk does is it only bonds to the stain. It only bonds to the foreign material that's there. It's a, I don't know, non-polar molecule versus polar molecules. Who knows? The point is, uh, that they spray gallons and gallons and gallons of the stuff um, on your clothing and then soak it in that and then eventually they tumble dry it just like normal and when your suit comes out or your shirt or whatever it is, it's free of stains and all the dirt is gone and it is perfectly clean. Or is it? See, what it does is it removes all the visible stains and that's kind of what you want. You want clothes that look clean and they do look clean, it gets rid of, you know, odors that you might not want there, but it's not truly clean. All they've done is that they've now replaced the visible stains with invisible chemicals. You can't see them, but you can smell them, you know that they're there, and maybe you put up with that smell because it's better than body odor, right? It's better than the alternative, it's better than having dirty clothing. Um, but even though it's not as obvious, visibly, as let's say spaghetti sauce or coffee on your suit, um, there's a problem with perk. It is a dangerous neurotoxin. EPA studies followed communities in Cape Cod where perk had been proven to get into the drinking water there. They discovered that these communities manifested a host of fertility issues, birth defects, high rates of bipolar disorder, PTSD, uh, vision problems, and types of cancer. So since those studies came out, states have started banning the use of PERC in California. Of course, it's completely illegal now, and they, in fact, make you remediate any building that has ever had a dry cleaner in it that even used the stuff. Um, and there's court cases going on about who should pay for that. Now, if you ever want to dry clean your clothes, you might want to ask the dry cleaner if they use a fifth-generation machine. I don't know what that means, but it's apparently safer, we think. Well, in the same way, there's some sins that are very obvious and very visible, and everybody, all Christians and everybody in the church would agree that these are stains that need to be scrubbed out of your life and out of the church. Uh, sins like adultery, stealing, drunkenness, homosexuality, fornication, violence. These are things that we say, oh, obviously that shouldn't be in the life of a Christian. But there are other sins that are maybe a little bit more subtle. We sort of tolerate them in each other. Maybe they're less visible. They lurk in the heart. They come out with little wafts rather than a visible spaghetti sauce stain. And so they seem less urgent because they're less obvious. And because they're lurking in the heart, uh, we tend to overlook them. We tolerate them. It's very common. We all do this. So let's not uh, you know, point fingers at other people. But those sins can poison the church silently. And they can spread spiritual disease and stunt your spiritual growth. The, these very sins that Peter addresses in his letter, 
now that he's moving from talking about doctrine, he's now going to give us some practice. And so turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. He'll actually give us the action that we need to perform the spiritual hygiene. Now, we've been looking at God's word at this point. Uh, Peter's written this letter to believers scattered all over because of persecution. He's encouraging them to keep calm and carry on. No matter what happens in your life, this is not God's judgment in your life. This is God's will that you're going through this difficult trial for his glory. And so the letter of 1 Peter is that message. Keep on and carry on. Just do the, the very next right thing and you'll be fine. And so then he, he, he anchored that hope in an eternal salvation that can't be taken from you no matter what happens in this life. Then he moved into sort of the, the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy that you always want with you on your travels. And that is the word of God. The word of God is like no other book. The word of God is like no other resource we have. And so we looked at that last week and the week before about the eternality of God's word, how it's still perfectly relevant today. People are writing all sorts of self-help books, and there's psychologists and uh, neuroscientists and everyone weighing in on the human condition, but humans have not changed since they fell in sin. And sin has not changed. The types of sins have changed, but the categories are still exactly the same. And so we need to go to God's word to sort out our lives so that we can live rightly, so we can keep calm and carry on so we can edify one another, so we can be a good witness to unbelievers, so that we can reach them, so we can love our neighbor as ourselves and love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. But how? So now Peter is going to uh, transition into really uh, calling us to long for the, the milk of the word. But before he does that, he throws this little aside in that is extremely important and helps us to understand what we need to do. So let me read for you from verse 4. This is First uh, Peter chapter 2. Uh, sorry, not verse 4. First Peter chapter 1, the last few verses. Um, verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I know there's a chapter break there in our versions, and that's fine, but I want you to notice the flow of the argument. He's talking about the, the eternality of God's word and the power of God's word. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, he's going to say that we need to long for this milk of God's word, and we'll look at that next week, um, Lord willing. But before that, there's this, this aside. Therefore, put away or having put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I don't know, for better or for worse, I've preached a series on this where I did a whole sermon on each one of these words. And so I'm going to do all five of those sermons today. So I hope you brought a snack. Um, no, I condensed it into a five-point sermon. Five subtle sins that must be cleaned out so that you can love your neighbor. Five subtle sins that must be cleaned out so that you can love your neighbor. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I know they don't start with the same letter, but that's Peter's fault. Um, 
So let's deal with the first one, malice. Malice. Um, he says here, like, uh, verse 1, so or therefore having put away, which comes with an uh, imperatival force, so command almost, put away all malice. Now, the idea of putting away means it's the same terminology Paul uses like in Ephesians 4, that you want to, you want to put off. It's like dirty clothing that you take off and you, you lay it aside and then you, you put on the new clothing. And so that's what he's saying. I want you to, to put this away. And he says he's going to command. The commands are only actually coming in the next verse. Long for the pure spiritual milk. But there's a precondition to that. Having put these things away, you can now long for the pure spiritual milk. So that's the, that's the phase that we're in here in his command. So it comes with a, an imperatival force, as if it's a command. It's almost really an assumption, a, a, an assumed precondition. And to put away is referring to the act of repentance. You know, when we help people write their testimonies for a baptism, for example, we always remind them to use the word or the concept of repentance, because a lot of people's testimonies lack that element. They talk about their life before Christ. Yes, I was sinful. They talk about how they heard the gospel. They talk about what their life is like after Christ. That's really a testimony. But repentance is that step where now that you know that you've been saved of your sins, you turn your back on them and you never go back. It's always part of the gospel. And so that's what he means here when he says, putting aside these things, now that you've been born again to this new and living hope, you have obviously turned your back on these things, and he lists a few of them, but they're not the normal ones that you would think he would list, you know, uh, your idolatry and your um, sexual promiscuity and your murder and your theft. It's malice is the first one, malice. Malice is a sin that's not very obvious and visible because it lurks in the heart. It's like a toxic chemical. People don't even see it. A definition given by J.B. Lightfoot, he says, Malice is the vicious nature which is bent on doing harm to others. So it's not the harm you actually do, that's a malicious act. Malice is that feeling you get inside you where you want harm to come to somebody. The apostles James and John revealed malice in their hearts when they were going through Samaria and the Samaritans treated them badly and rejected them and they asked Jesus, can we call fire down from heaven like happened in the Old Testament and just nuke them all? Well, they didn't actually end up doing that. Jesus rebukes them, calls them sons of thunder. You don't know what spirit you're of. But they wanted to. And in our world, people are trying to draw a distinction between wanting to do something and actually doing it. It's okay to want to do it as long as you don't act on it. The Bible says no. Wanting to do it is a sin. The fact that it's in your heart shows there's something wrong with your heart. This is not how Jesus was. He didn't go around wanting harm to come upon people because he was sinless. And so we need to put this aside. We need to turn our backs on it, a 180 degree turn and repent of malice. Malice is the raw material of which hurtful words and deeds are built. It starts in the heart. That's the raw material. I want harm to come to that person. That turns into a word that hurts them or a deed. 
but it starts with this malice. We also see Jonah manifest malice, didn't we? When he, he goes ahead and he eventually obeys God and he preaches to the Ninevites and then they repent and then God relents from destroying them and he pouts and throws a little hissy fit. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you're slow to anger, quick to forgive. I know that you're gracious. And he's like upset about it that God didn't destroy them because he hates the Assyrians. So he didn't actually do anything wrong, but he had this in his heart and God rebukes him for it. So you need to repent of your malice. That, that desire for something to happen to someone else. James 1 verse 14 to 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. That's the consequence. The sin is what you do, but there's this conception of the sin before you even do it. That's what causes the sin. That's where you need to kill it. The desire. There's a lot of talk these days about the difference between the temptation and sin. You know, it's, temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but that's an external temptation. That is a trap that is laid by Satan that you don't fall into. But that desire in your heart for something that God doesn't want you to desire, that's, that's something the theologians call concupiscence. Concupiscence is like the kindling, the, the inflammable little thing that... Um, so in, in Catholic theology, they say you've got concupiscence and then an act of the will ignites it. So you haven't sinned until you've ignited that sin, that, that kindling. But what the Reformers taught in Scripture is that no, even having that kindling in your heart is wrong and needs to be cleaned out first. That's how you avoid sin. That's the part that you need to clean out. So put away the malice, and you won't ever get to the gossip, the slander, the insult, the murder, whatever it is. Romans 1.14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So when you feel that desire for someone to suffer, you need to confess that to the Lord. And say, I agree with you that this is wrong. And turn your back on it. Let's move on to the second one. Deceit. This one's going to be a little longer than the others, so bear with me. It's a very important one. Put away all malice, verse 1 says, and all deceit. All kinds of deceit, you might want to say. The definition of deceit is to give a false impression. To mislead into ignorance or misunderstanding. So it's to cause someone to not know the truth. Something that you do that prevents them from knowing the truth. That's deceit. This includes lying, of course. Plagiarism. Confidence scams. Cheating on exams. Cheating on your taxes. Stretching the truth. Minimizing implications. Omitting pertinent details. False advertising. Padding your resume? I mean, deceit can come in many different forms. The golden rule is try to figure out, am I giving the person the information that they actually need? Or am I withholding, changing, obscuring, misdirecting certain details? That's just deceit. 
Sometimes it's not obvious to people, and so you can claim ignorance. Yeah, you know, you, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that I didn't scan this bottle of milk twice at the self-checkout. I thought I did. You know, but in your heart, you, you know you did something wrong there. And so sometimes we don't spot the deceit in each other, or it's easy to, to claim, well, it, it's not really there. But the Lord knows your heart, and so do you. Put that aside. The problem with deceit is that we think it's such a natural thing. It's just part of, it's part of our whole culture. It, it's, it's, it's natural to lie. Someone asks you how you're doing. You don't tell them the truth. They don't really want to know either, honestly. It's just, a, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Okay, phew. I didn't want the long story about how you're not fine and why it is. So what's up with that? Why are we not being truthful with one another? It's just part of our culture. You know that even animals lie? I mean, a lot of animals, they only survive because they trick their prey by being deceptive. Um, and then, of course, there's a famous case of Coco. You know, Coco is a gorilla who was taught American Sign Language. Coco knew a thousand signs and could communicate, almost like a human being. And Coco is also the only animal that we know of that has other animals as pets. So she has some kittens that she feeds and she plays with them and takes care of them. And one day, Coco get, like, gets all upset about something and she grabs the sink and rips it out of its brackets and throws it down and has this huge tantrum. And when her handler comes in and asks her what happened, she says in sign language, the cat did it. <laughs> so she needs to confess that, right? and turn her back on it and repent. But it's just such a natural thing. But for Christians, we have different standards. The world's standards may be here, but we have higher standards. Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's our standard. We want to be like God. God is a God who never lies. It doesn't matter if it's natural. We're called to a supernatural standard. Now that we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're born again. We were raised with Christ in his resurrection to this new life, as we saw in baptism today. What does that look like? That looks like putting away all deceit in your life. So let me help you with this. I said this would be a little bit longer. This is, this is a very important one because I think it's the most pervasive of the subtle sins we put up with in our lives. Here's a little diagnostic test. Do you have deceit in your life? Um, maybe you've got one or a few of these that you need to repent of. Half-truths. A half-truth is when you tell someone part of the truth, but you deliberately withhold a pertinent detail that they should know to have the full picture. For example, when Abraham told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister, because he feared that if he knows that Sarah's my wife, I'm going to get into trouble, he's going to kill me and take Sarah, because look at her, which is very sweet, but, you know, that she was that attractive. But he, did he tell the truth? Well, she was his half-sister. I know that's kind of gross, but um, in those days, gene pool and stuff, it was still Okay. So she was his half-sister, and that's the part that he said. But what do you think Abimelech actually needed to know about the situation? That they were also married. 
And so that's a half-truth, and a half-truth is a full lie. What about this dishonest negotiating tactics? I know this might cost you some money if you're in sales. Proverbs 20, verse 14 says, Bad, bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, he boasts. Oh, you're driving a hard bargain here. My kids are going to go hungry. Okay, and then he drops the price, and you're like, man, I got such a good deal. Dishonest negotiating tactics. What about this one? White lies. White lies is a term we came up with to refer to a lie where the end justifies the means. We kind of think, well, you know, it's like when your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? I mean, there is no right answer except, no, honey, you never look fat, no matter what you wear. That's the right answer, whether that's true or not, right? Why? Because the end justifies the means. I want to boost her confidence. I, I want to stay married, you know, those kinds of things. In 1 Samuel 19, we see an example where Saul sends messengers, assassins really, to go and arrest David and bring him to be executed. And so they knock on the door, the classic, you know, the Nazis knocking on the door asking if you're hiding Jews there, what do you do kind of thing. That's exactly what happens. They knock on the door. David's wife answers the door and she says, verse 13, Michal took an, well, first she took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messages to take David, she said, he's sick. And they're like, oh. And then they go back to Saul, and Saul's like, I'm going to kill him. I don't care if he's sick. Go get him, you know? And that gave him time to escape. So she actually goes to the effort of building like a little, you know, Ferris Bueller day off kind of thing here, like building a bed so it looks like he's in there, complete with the goat hair. So they're at the door, and she says, look, there he's, he's sleeping because he's sick. You'll have to go away and kill him later. And they're like, Okay, and they leave. So the end there justifies the means because she's looking after God's anointed, right? No, it's still a lie. What about omission? Omission is when you leave someone in ignorance to mislead them. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sold some of their property and they, they kept the money, some of the money for themselves and they gave the rest to the church, which was fine, but people were praising them for selling their property and giving all of the money to the church because that's what everyone else was doing. And they might not even have said that, but they basked in the praise of the people when actually they, they knew, and only the two of them knew, that they had kept some of the money for themselves. And Peter says to them, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And you can imagine Ananias saying, well, technically, I didn't lie. I mean... They just assumed that, and I left them in that assumption, but he doesn't get chance because God struck him dead. I remember that when I was at the airport once. Um, sometimes when I, I travel, I, you know, I don't wear a suit. I go in like tactical gear. Uh, once I had a camouflage backpack and a camouflage cap with a little American flag, and I don't know. I don't know why. I just do that sometimes, um, incognito. And I was sitting there looking at something on my phone, and uh, my back was kind of hurting, and I was like, I kind of need to go to the bathroom, so I packed up my phone. And as I was about to stand up, they said, now boarding um, active military. And so I stood up, and two other guys stood up, and this older man next to me said, thank you for your service. <laughs> and the other two men were just like, you know, you're welcome. And I was like, what do I say? I'm not even American, you know, it's like... <laughs> 
but what am I going to say at that point? So I, I just kind of kept quiet. And then I felt convicted because I was like, now, now everyone thinks that I'm this war hero or something. I've got my American cap on. And uh, so I just went to the bathroom and didn't board with them and hope that they're not here today. Um, so you want to confess that. You want to stop the person right up front and say, no, I, I, we kept some of the, the money for ourselves. Let us know if you need it. Oh, no, I, I just, I respect the military. That's why I wear the cap, not because I am the military. You just stop the person. You bring truth to the situation. And it might even be awkward in the moment, but you build a reputation of somebody who volunteers truth. You don't want people to have to suck the truth out of you. You volunteer the truth, and then people trust you. Let me, um, uh, one more, false advertising if you're in business. This is when a buyer gets less than he was told to expect. We've all been the victim of false advertising, but don't be the perpetrator. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. A false balance so that the person thought they were getting this amount of wheat, but they were getting less. So let me answer this question. What is not lying? Just in case you walk out of here, you're super paranoid. People ask you, so how are you doing? And you're like, oh, and you just run away because you don't know what to say. Okay, so firstly, what's not lying? One is, uh, A, making genuine mistakes in accuracy. You know, if you, you said something and it's not quite true, sometimes, you know, your kids love to catch you. Oh, Dad, you lied. You said it wasn't going to rain, and it did. You lied. I was like, well, it's not like I knew it was going to rain, and it was just, you know, the weatherman is always off the hook. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a genuine mistake in accuracy. That's not lying. Secondly, um, agreed arena for misinformation. So this is where people get together and they say, for, the, for this, you know, 45-minute period, we are going to um, deceive one another for the sake of the game. So sports, for example. You know, nobody's like, fake left, go right. Everyone stops. Hey, he lied. He made it look like he was going to go left. What does Jesus think about this? You know, like nobody, not even church basketball games go like that, you know. Um, you're allowed to fake left and go right. It's an agreed-upon arena for misinformation. Another one would be the military. We see this in um, Joshua chapter 8, where God instructs Joshua to lay an ambush, where the people hide in a valley at Ai, and then they have a small force go, and then that small force looks like it's being defeated, and they retreat, and as the people follow them out, the bigger force comes and attacks the city. That was God's plan. So we know that that's not de deceptive. It's obviously in the military, you know, it's not like the Allies told the Nazis, listen, it's D-Day, you know, <laughs> we're, we're coming on this day, if the weather's good, if not, we'll call and we'll postpone, we'll let you know when we're going to be there. No, there, there was a lot of misinformation there so that they could carry out their campaign. Another one is misdirection, misdirection to avoid being a victim of evil. Some, some might argue that that's kind of what Mikkel did, but this would be an example of, you know, when you go on vacation and you put your uh, timer on so your lights go on at night, and then they go off in the morning and you ask your neighbor to come get your trash or your mail so that it doesn't, so people don't think that you're away on holiday. Well, are you lying? This happens all the time in South Africa. People have their lights go on and off when they're away from home to make the bad guys not know if they're home or not. Well, that's misdirection. You're not pretending to be home. What you're doing is you're interfering with the pattern that they're looking for so that they don't know when you're home and when you're not. I would say that's okay. And I get that from 1 Samuel 16 where God again tells Samuel, God tells Samuel to go and anoint David. But Samuel says, if Saul finds out that I'm going to anoint David, he's going to kill me. So if he sees me going up there for no reason, he's going to know I'm 
looking for another king. So God tells him, take a heifer with you to sacrifice and, and then sacrifice it. And so if you see a priest walking around with a heifer, you know, everyone except the heifer knows what's going to happen. <laughs> um, and that's okay. And so he goes and he does the sacrifice or whatever. But that, that was, again, that was God's plan. So that's misdirection to, become, uh, to avoid becoming a victim of Saul's evil. What about joking? Think about it. Most of joking is there's deception involved, like when you put a plastic fly in someone's drink. So joking is deceiving a person until the point where the truth is revealed. That's what makes it funny. If you don't ever tell them the truth and they just live believing the lie, that's not a joke. That's just lying. So you, you, you set it up that it's going to be a surprise. Well, Proverbs 26, 18 says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. So I'm going to leave it to your conscience to determine whether or not joking in a particular time is actually deceitful and sinful. But I do want to warn you that it's difficult to love your neighbor as yourself and at the same time be someone who throws firebrands, arrows, and death at them. And that's what a prank is. So in case you're wondering, don't do pranks on me. Um, <laughs> kids. Um, okay, let's move on to the next sin. Hypocrisy. This is the third subtle sin that needs to be cleaned out of our house. Verse 1 says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. You might want to turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is kind of a classic passage where Jesus talks to the hypocrites. So the word hypocrite um, refers to a mask that is worn over the face. That's what actors were called. Actors were called hypocrites, people that had masks. Because remember, they don't have zoom in. So if you want to show someone you were smiling... You put out this big mask, like the size of a half a person, that's got a smile on it. And then if you were sad, you would walk out with the mask that's got the frown on it. To this day, the, that's the symbol for drama, right? So that's where that comes from. Um, that's what a hypocrite was. It was a person who was putting on a mask, somebody who was pretending to be someone else for the, for the sake of entertainment. In fact, we've got the Oscars coming up soon, the Academy Awards, which is basically just um, rewarding people for pretending to be people that we actually like. Um, so this person was the best person pretending to be someone that we like, so let's give them a award, you know, it doesn't matter what they're actually like. So they're just pretenders, they're hypocrites, actors. Um, verse, uh, Matthew 23, verse 5. Oh, sorry, let's start in verse 1. Jesus says, and then in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they're preaching the books of Moses. So practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So here's, they're pretending to be righteous, and they're telling you how to be righteous, but they're not doing it. And Jesus says, look, if it's coming from the book of Moses, if it's actually from the Bible, you do need to do it. So practice what they tell you. But don't follow their example because they're hypocrites. They're not actually doing what they should. That's hypocrisy. If you look at verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So this is another symptom of hypocrisy is when you, you do what you're doing for, to display to others. You're signaling. You're, you're putting on a performance. And so their phylacteries, you know, were... Um, things that they would tie on their hands and on their forehead they, and on their prayer fringes. They would have like blue, thick 
um, uh, borders to show I'm wearing my prayer shawl. This isn't just a regular little scarf. Like I'm, I'm always ready to pray. So they're just virtue signaling is what we call that today. You do something to virtue signal to everybody of how good you are. And that's a form of hypocrisy because you're not, you're not just doing it for God, you're doing it for other people. And so the, those are the two symptoms. One is an outward show and the other one is trying to hold people to standards that you yourself don't even keep. They're, they're giving you these burdens, but they're not, they're not helping. And sometimes we do that too, don't we? I've, I've heard somebody say, I, I, I saw that person, that elder, breaking the speed limit. And so I say, you never break the speed limit? I say, well, he's an elder. Oh, okay, so we both admit that this is the standard, but you, you, it's okay that you don't keep it. You're all upset that someone else doesn't keep it. And there's always a reason why that person should keep it and not in my case. You know, that's hypocrisy. Don't hold people to standards that you yourself don't keep. Never do that. And don't do your righteousness to be seen by others. Um, when I was in Egypt, I saw a number of the, the Muslim men there had these weird, like, scars. If you ever go to Egypt, you'll see they've got these scars on their forehead. And so I, I asked our, our guide who was with us, like, why, why is that? Why do they all have that? And he says, well, um, you know, they have to pray all these times a day um, to, towards Mecca, and they have their little prayer carpets, and so they'll stop whatever they're doing at the prayer time, and then they bow down, and they touch their head to the carpet, and over time, they get carpet burn, and they get these scars. And I was like, wow, but some of these scars look really nasty. <laughs> like, you get that from carpet burn? I had no idea. And they said, no, 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 no. What they do is they cut themselves, and they put dirt in it so that it gets infected and makes a really nasty scar so that people think, wow, they pray really zealously, and they never miss one. I'm like, and everyone knows that they're doing that? Yeah, everyone with those scars, everyone knows that's what they're doing. I'm like, that's just... Brilliant, really. Um, for a hypocrite. So don't do that. Don't be that person, you know. Debt can be a form of hypocrisy. Proverbs 13, 7 says, There's one who pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Usually when somebody has great wealth and they're pretending to be poor, it's for modesty reasons, usually. They're trying not to show off. But somebody who doesn't have great wealth but lives like they do by going into debt, they're pretending to be rich. That's hypocrisy. Beware of that. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be asked by my kids, like, wow, look at that person's life. How can they afford that? And then we have to remind them, well, maybe they can't. You never know. You never know. Maybe they're in debt. People like to signal how rich they are, even if they're not. That's the type of hypocrisy. Don't do that. That's deceit. And then just a final application on hypocrisy is parents, don't train your children to be hypocrites. And this happens in churches sometimes because you'll hear parents say, look, I don't mind if you do that. Just don't do it in front of church people. You know, then they're, they're going to judge my parenting. You know, I don't mind if you dress immodestly or whatever when you go out with your friends, but don't dress immodestly around, you know, the, the pastor or this person who's coming over from church because I don't want them to think I'm okay with it. I mean, I am okay with it. So what are you training your child then? To, to put on one sort of standard at church and in front of church people and a different standard when you're not with church people and that's called hypocrisy. And Peter says, put aside hypocrisy. Be a person that has no masks. What you see is what you get. This is who I am. 
your behavior at home, parents, if it contradicts what you're hearing in the sermons in front of your children, your behavior will slit the throat of every sermon I preach. Because they say, well, mom and dad obviously don't believe what they're hearing in church. Why should I? And then you get upset with them when they grow up and turn away from the Lord as soon as they leave high school. Maybe you're the one that taught them that. Let's move on to the next sin, envy. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. So a definition of envy by Jerry Bridges is envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. The painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. So it's that feeling you get when someone else gets some sort of advantage, some sort of blessing from God, and you, you get that feeling of resentment or pain that they have something good happening to them. That's called envy. You know, it's close cousin is covetousness. Covetousness is when you want something you can't have. It's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Don't, you're not allowed to desire something that God has said no to, like another man's wife, for example. You can't have that, or another man's property. So you can want a car like your neighbor's car, but you may not want your neighbor's car. You can't steal that from him. So coveting, again, it's one of those things that happens in the heart and turns into some sort of deed. And so it's the same with envy. Envy is that I don't mind that um, I don't have a million subscribers on YouTube, and I don't mind that there's people out there with 500 million subscribers on YouTube, but I mind that my brother has 10,000 subscribers because he's a loser. That's envy. When it's just, there's something about the person that you just, you just don't like that, they're, that it's working for them. We see this in um, Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, Leah. Remember, Leah is like fertile myrtle. I mean, she's just, she's having babies all the time. And here's Rachel, and, and Rachel is barren, and so she envies her sister. She doesn't mind that women have babies, and she doesn't. She minds that her sister is having so many babies and not her. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. I mean, it drove her to depression. She was obsessed with this fact that her sister kept having babies and not her. Jacob wisely says, am I in the place of God? Like, I'm not choosing to have babies with one of you and not the other. I mean, you shouldn't have had two wives, but, but anyway. That's envy. We see King Ahab want Naboth's vineyard. He just loves Naboth's vineyard, but it belongs to Naboth, so he has Naboth killed. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not, ladies, envy. They're doing this in the ladies' Bible study on Tuesdays, right? Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogance. You cannot love your neighbor if you resent God's blessing in their life. Can't love your neighbor as you love yourself if you resent God blessing them. Okay, and the final one, just briefly, slander. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, all different types of slander. The word slander means to speak against. Kata lailias. Kata means against. Lailas means to talk. To talk against someone. So when you are saying something about another person 
that um, taints their reputation. That's slander. The definition of slander is the act of saying something false or malicious that damages someone's reputation. It's very important that you understand that slander is when you have that malice. Because you might say, and this is very common, well, it's not slander because it's true. I called my boss completely incompetent. That's not slander. Have you met the guy? He is incompetent. I'm just telling the truth. Yes, but why are you telling the truth? Is it because somebody has asked you for a reference and you're respectfully giving information uh, honestly about this person's performance? Or are you wanting to hurt them by talking about them in this way? That's the difference. One commentator points out it can even take the form of a prayer request. Slander. Have you ever heard this one? Ladies, please just pray for my husband because he's such a loser. I'm just asking for prayer. I just need help. I wish this ladies group was even bigger so that more people could know, I mean, could pray for my loser husband. Proverbs 10, 18 says, whoever utters slander is a fool. You're a fool. To escape the, the category of slander, it has to be for for pure motives that you're speaking against someone. And we, and we see examples of this. We see uh, in 2 Timothy 4, 14, Paul is warning Timothy in the church about Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. You've heard me name names from this pulpit of false teachers who are best-selling authors, books that you can buy from a Christian bookstore that if you read and believe what they say, you go to hell. I'm going to mention their names. And people say, I, well, have you gone to them personally? No, they wrote that publicly. <laughs> they're leading people, they're leading thousands of people astray. Like the more public we can be about warning people, the better. And Paul did the same thing with Alexander. Jesus did this with the Pharisees. That's why he calls them dead men's bones. They're hypocrites. He's, done, he's calling them this in front of everyone because he's warning people with the, the motive, not to hurt the Pharisees, but to protect the people. Let me just end with one practical suggestion of what this could look like. Because if you hate slander as much as God does, then you need to hate listening to it too. And so this is hard because you might be like, I'm not the one slandering. This person's slandering to, to me, like gossiping or whatever. What do I do? So... And just remember, slander is, this is going to be convicting. Because <laughs> it was convicting for me. I, I have to sit with this sermon the whole week, by the way. So there you go. Um, slander is even when you speak with malice in your heart against political leaders. Yeah. I mean, sometimes our political leaders, they're just, they're just crazy incompetent, right? <laughs> and that's true. But why are we talking about that? Why are we mentioning the person's name? Why are we saying this about this leader or that leader? Because God has appointed them. And so what is our motive for speaking against our leaders even? So this is just a practical thing. I've done this before. Sometimes it's kind of awkward. Sometimes it's kind of embarrassing. And people just think that you're either just socially maladapted. But that's fine. But, you know, you're either that or you're just weird. But it's better than sinful. And that's when somebody slanders or gossips to you, then try to counter whatever they said with something positive about the person. You just build that habit of 
when they say, you know, this political leader is such an idiot. He's just making these terrible decisions and what a loser or whatever. Then you say, yes, but at least he married well or something. I mean, <laughs> or, or something, you know, like he, he's got something going for him. This, this lady, oh, she's just awful. She's just so toxic in the way she talks or whatever. And then you're like, rather than say, yes, yeah, so are you. You say, yeah, but she sure makes a mean peach cobbler, right? <laughs> I mean, just, I don't know, just in the moment, it's sometimes difficult. And so just try to think of some way of building the person up. And as you do that over time, you'll build a reputation that you're no longer fun to slander with. And then, then the temptation goes away. Um, because Proverbs 26, 22 says, the words of a whisperer are like tasty morsels. They go down into the belly. You know, it's like when someone, ooh, uh, we've got a little thing. I've got tea. Ooh, spill it. You know, have you heard that? I've got tea. Spill it. I've, I've, I've got a tasty morsel. Ooh, give it to me. Once you start feeling that, ooh, tell me this thing about this person that's going to make me think they're an idiot. That's not a, not a good sign, right? So, after all of that, if you're visiting today for the first time, don't worry, it's not always like this. It's just that's what Peter had for us. I could have made this five weeks, too. Okay, so come back next week and we'll get to the spiritual milk part. But we've all fallen short in these areas, right? I'm sure there's at least one of these at one time that you can remember. You're like, this is something in my life that needs to go. This is a toxic chemical that other people might not even see. No one's confronting me on it. But I know the Holy Spirit was pushing on it while he was talking. Don't ignore that. That's good. That's how we become like Christ. Whenever you feel that feeling of like, oh my goodness, I, I always do this thing that I shouldn't be doing. Don't justify it. Well, everybody else does too. He doesn't know my past. He doesn't know. That's not the point. This is God telling you, let's work on this one thing. Let's get this stain out. This is spiritual hygiene. And the reason we can have such confidence that we can be free from the sin is because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life without ever sinning in any way. He never had any malice. He never had any envy. He never had any deceit in anything that he ever did. And so he didn't deserve the wrath of God, but your envy deserves the wrath of God. And your slander does. But he offered himself on the cross. That is the gospel. That's the good news. That all of that righteousness he made available to the whole world by dying on the cross so that whoever believes in him can turn away from their sins and have victory over their sin. And that all of that guilt that you've already incurred, well, you can't undo that, but you don't have to. He paid for it on the cross. That's the good news, that Jesus paid the, for the wrath of God, the guilt that you incurred. He paid for that, as, as we said because we baptized an accountant today. You know, your liability was wiped clean by the asset of his righteousness. He put all of his righteousness into your account so that when God looks at your account, you get to heaven as a perfect person. But in response, all of this, this residual toxic chemical in you that can stunt your growth and infect other people, you need to scrub that clean. And so you go to him daily and confess your sin. Just say Confessing just means I admit this is wrong. I'm going to turn my back on it. And you go in the opposite direction. You ask him to forgive you. And he'll wipe you clean right now from anything you've ever done. Think about that. Because you might be thinking, you have no idea what my past is like. God knows it better than you. And he will remove all of that stain and guilt and sin in a moment. And give you all of the righteousness and blessing and all of the power that comes to overcome 
these types of subtle sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. So clean them out before these toxins spread in your life in our church. Put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do we thank you for the reminder that we are sinful creatures. Sometimes we think we're doing so much better than other people, but then we look at our lives and realize we've got so far to go before we're perfect like Christ. And so we thank you for the grace that covers our imperfection, our falling short, that we can be confident that we will see you one day in heaven, not because of our merits of being able to get rid of these sins ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Christ that you give us as a free gift. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for living and dying for us and conquering the grave in resurrection. Amen.